The one thing you shouldn't be doing is taking responsibility without authority. Did you have some system to look and to deal with these questions and to determine competency of the physician? You don't want anybody saying, well, I told them and they never listened to me. Hey, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, the April issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. You know, for the last probably year, every time we do an issue, we never get to Greg's cases. Never. <laughs> He's been accumulating these things now. And today we're going to do Greg's issue. All I only, right. I only have one article that I want to talk about, and I got one email. That's it, Greg. So you slip those in whenever you want. It is a great article, I must admit. It's very yeah, cool. It is. It's a very cool article. But let's do this. All right. It's April 2019. Uh, the sun is actually shining here in Michigan today, and oh, my God, all the people, they wander around <laughs> on the streets saying things like, what big round ball in sky? And, they're, you know, they, they're all afraid the Earth's going to end, but we'll get over that. Okay, just to start out, a little coming attractions. We are going to get Mark Calvert, the lawyer from Texas, back in the next couple of months. And we want to talk about the question of nurse practitioners and even some PAs, depending on the state law, having independent practice. What does it mean? Are there any cases? Uh, and, the, and the reason I'm putting this forward is because we have listeners everywhere. If you know of cases where doctors have been sued uh, from giving their oversight their the their offline support for these people. Uh, some of them are working in freestanding. Some of them have set up almost office practices, and we'd like to know about it because I think what's happening here, and Rick, you can chime in. I think we're slowly but surely letting something happen that changes the whole concept of the practice of medicine. And what does that mean liability-wise? I have no idea yet. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that the more, uh, the more we're related to uh, other practitioners and in a supervisory role, the more our risks are going to increase. But, you know, we did a paper, you and I, Greg, yes. a while ago that said the more independent practice there was, the less liability there was for physicians because they are practicing independently. They are not under our supervision. Yes, that's the camel's nose. Uh, if, they're de if they don't have to be under our supervision, has the concept of the practice of medicine changed? I mean, nurses would always say, well, this is the practice of nursing, not the practice of medicine. If people come in, you take a history, do a physical, do testing, give them a diagnosis and treatment. That sounds kind of like the practice of medicine to me, but maybe maybe I'm just from another world and nobody understands it anymore, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip on by it. Well, All right. you know, before you do that, I mean, we need to kind of call a spade a spade here. Uh, you know that about maybe three weeks ago. The American Academy of Emergency Medicine, I don't know if you know this, came out with a 
quote, updated position statement on advanced practice providers that was uh, pretty aggressive about um, the need for supervision, the, the, uh, the not support for the uh, independent practice of um, PA, PAs and MPs, ONPs specifically. And you know the AMA has come out, obviously, against in, independent practice of uh, nurse practitioners. But uh, 23 states now have approved the independent practice of nurse practitioners. And it, honestly, I think it's kind of pretty easy. The uh, nurse practitioners uh, lobby uh, to the uh, nursing board of the state. The nursing board of the state, uh, who is responsible for nurse practitioner uh, you know, service levels, says, okay, then that is taken to the legislature of the state and they make the case that we need more primary care in the hinterlands, we need more help, and there's this big shortage and uh, it gets passed, 23 states. Uh, SEMPA shot back almost immediately with a uh, response to AAEM, which basically said, Come on, guys, you know, back off. You know, we need some collegiality here, and uh, you didn't really need to say what you said. It was kind of interesting that I would have loved to have heard the conversation that precipitated AAEM feeling that they had to make this position statement known because it is not, you know, it is kind of they're trying to put the brakes on um, this this process. So... It's uh, it's it's, frankly, a hot potato right now. Well, it's a very hot potato. That's why, with a listening audience like ours, get, send us your cases, your problems. You're 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 tired. You're homeless, and we will put this together and and talk about the liability situation because the one thing you shouldn't be doing is taking responsibility without authority. Well, you if know, that's the case, you're in deep trouble. It's interesting that um, the AAEM position was that physicians should not be signing charts unless <clears throat> there was a direct um, relationship between the physician and the patient with regards to assessment of the uh, situation uh, directly by the uh, physician. Otherwise, putting your name on the chart is... Uh, it's unclear what the heck that means. Well, it doesn't mean anything, frankly, but it puts your name in a, in a potentially vulnerable position because it implies some level of uh, support uh, and concurrence. Yes, I, I understand that. And it's the things are not going to get better until we work on them simply because if you run a big healthcare organization, you want to flow as much work as you can to a cheaper product. And if you don't pay those people as much money as you pay MDs, then there's more money left over for other things. But let's save this until we have well, Mark Galbert. One more. Um, I was at one of our board review courses uh, about three or four weeks ago, and I was talking to a fellow there who they had uh, – these pods and he was in a pod and there in, in a pod, there were two emergency physicians and a PA. Well, now the pod has one emergency physicians and two PAs. And, yes. 
And I don't know whether you saw this editorial in Emergency Medicine News. I think it was Emergency Medicine News, yes. Uh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't an editorial. It was a commentary by this doctor who says, whoa, 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 cut the spigot. We're turning out too many emergency physicians. We're turning out 2,000 a year. Uh, and yes, there is going to be attrition, but the next, but there's going to be a net positive, and this is going to affect uh, competition for positions, which are mostly in the urban and suburban areas, and it's going to drive down salaries. And so these these position papers in this commentary all came out together, which is it's all about money. It's all about, um, and you're terribly right. It's like, and it doesn't matter whether you're a contract physician group. The contract physician groups, they've said, you know, we've hired our last doctor. One of my good friends in Orange County, big ER, big ER group, said a, a number of years ago, I bet you it was uh, at least at least six, seven, eight years ago, he said, we've hired our last doctor. Yep, yeah, I, I, I know that. And I, I honestly believe that what, what we don't do enough in in any political situation, and this is politics. This is not knowing when to use ceftriaxone. This is politics, and what we don't do is speak candidly about what we're thinking. And uh, I, I made the statement five years ago, as all these new residencies were coming online, I said, what you're doing is is you're producing overproducing your own competition and the academics went crazy they they hated me for what i said about that we don't necessarily need more uh more residencies and you know what it's coming true rick it's coming true well all right take a look at that commentary in emergency medicine news all right it's very provocative yep all right uh next um, I was doing some searching online, <clears throat> and Rick doesn't even believe I can do that. I, I am I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. And I was looking at, uh, and this is something powered by TrendMD, but there was a discussion. It was done November 1st, 2016, uh, and they brought together people commenting on something we've talked about on this show, and that is what does the signature mean on an against medical advice form? And Rick, they agree with us. It means nothing. <laughs> Everybody there, attorneys, doctors who'd been involved in cases, et cetera, et cetera, said this, that, that squiggle on the line is, might as well be nothing. You have to put. You have to talk about how you assessed their their uh, capacity, how you did this and that, and all these other things, uh, which we talked about. If those of you who have the ability to search, you can look at our previous discussions and the five things which we talked about are exactly what these people uh, said need to be done. So if anyone has any idea that signing the piece of paper is the same as doing the process, you're just wrong. Well, I think, <laughs> I think it's probably for the sake of, uh, you know, following the rules at the hospital, 
I would I would do both, uh, but I certainly agree that the non-paper part is probably the m- most important part be- because, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, I I was so upset. I didn't read that thing. They put a piece of paper and I signed it, and, you know. Right. You, you can't. Yeah, you're and it's just a setup. And their relatives are worse. So they even when they sign, you, you have to talk about were the relatives capable of taking this person home all that kind of stuff. All right, next. We're, again, we're going to take care of a thousand bits of business today. In the February 2019 issue of ASAP Now, one of our listeners, and I'm sure he's listening right now, Ken uh, Tots, D O J D F A C E P, wrote an article that says what's actually in the National Practitioner Data Bank. Not only what's in it, but the 2018 modifications, the straightenings around, the clarifications, so that everybody kind of knows what needs to be in there. And if you're the chief of a department, if you're running the quality assurance, if you're doing various things, I'm going to give you just a few things he mentions but I'm telling you to go read somebody else. You're probably already getting this article anyway, uh, but everybody ought to read it because uh, what needs to be reported? Adverse clinical privilege actions. We know that. That means if you've taken cut back somebody's privileges uh, for more than 30 days, it has to be reported to the bank. Negative actions or findings by private accreditation organizations and peer review organizations. So if you're working with some big outfit which has hired this done from the outside and they come back to you and say, you know, we find our peer review says that Joe Blow is not very good. Think about that. Uh, Keep it in mind. Healthcare-related criminal convictions or civil actions. So, anytime one of your guys is arrested, picked up, put aside, this, that, another thing, uh, you need to be aware of it. And adjudications, actions, or other decisions which may bear upon practice. Now, that's so open. I have no idea what it actually means, but think about that for a while. Now, the purpose of furthering quality health care, uh, having these sorts of things, is that so somebody knows and somebody takes action. And the feds now, if you do not report, and by you, let's define the use. There's three or four people, groups that have to report. If you run a, an insurance company of any kind and you don't report, anytime you don't report a payment of any kind, that's not just a settlement. Uh, you, all this kind of stuff, it's 11000 bucks, and uh, your, your name as the provider is put in the federal uh, register. Uh, and you may lose your immunity from from uh, liability under other acts of the of uh, Title Three, uh, Title Four. So, uh, with respect to professional review, think about this stuff. Any professional si- society 
and listen carefully. They always want to call themselves professional societies. When I was president of ASEP, I called us our trade union and said I was our trade organization. And you thought uh, all the academics were going to beat me with a damn hose. Oh, no, we're highly professional. We're highly scientific. He said, shut up. This organization's job is to look out for its members. That's what we do. And if you as the professional society fail uh, to report an action, you can be fined as well. So whenever we do take someone's privileges away or, or what we do is we censure them to not report a censured physician you violated the rules of the National Practitioner Data Bank. So when the when the uh, Ethics Committee of ASEP is essentially trying somebody almost always on their, their testimony uh, in court, this is important. And by the way, any health plan, pick one, anyone that's advertising on TV for you to sign up, if they do not report – uh, such a physician, it's $25,000 for each one of those. So I would take that piece of paper, or the, 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 it's, it's, is one page in the February issue of ASAP Now, take it out, read it, make sure your other people have read it, because uh, there's real money here if you screw up. Rick? You know, I think one of the problems, frankly, is that I think this is, Fundamentally well-intended. But um, one of the things it does is it really raises the bar for um, people being censured. How many, do you know how many people have been censured by ASAP? It's less than one handful. I can tell you that. Yeah. It's, I think there's about seven. Right. One and a half handfuls. and, And only two people have actually been kicked out of ASAP because of it. Because the consequences of this, of censoring people or in any way slapping the wrist are so substantial in terms of, uh, count, uh, you know, countersuits against them because, yes. the, you know, the people who are censured, they don't want their names in the data back, uh, especially because of, uh, of being censured by an organization. It, it's like it really in some ways is counterproductive in that Everybody is walking on eggs when they are talking about these kinds of things. And I know at the hospital, boy, the idea of restricting anybody's privileges was a big, big, big deal. And sometimes it was really very obvious. I mean, there there was a case I remember where a doctor was accused of being a little too familiar with the patients during their his physical exams. And uh, that went up to the medical board. And the medical board basically expected the hospital to respond to that, and this requires that they had a um, a, uh, a chaperone in all physical examinations in the hospital, mm-hmm. and that was a that was a hassle, and so it basically uh, everybody was very 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 kind of careful uh, dealing with that stuff because the, the ability to trigger a lawsuit is uh, very substantial, I think. Yeah. We got a, uh, an email from um, 
one of the gals who's written to us for years and years and was telling us about some administrators who were yelling and screaming to the point where one woman had security come and remove him because she felt, you know, for her own safety. Doctors who are listening to this, the old days are gone. Badass surgeons who throw uh, uh, res- uh, equipment uh, and things like that, they're removed from the staff these days. This stuff doesn't, shouldn't happen anymore. And if there's a colleague who's making people, other people feel uncomfortable in the workplace, look out. Because those people need to be reported to the data bank as well. And I promise you, I don't know a group, a major group, that doesn't check the data bank to see if people who are applying for work have ever been reported. Hostile work environment. You know, we did talk about the uh, idea of lawyers doing an end run on the cap on pain and suffering by uh, suing for... Uh, inappropriate credentialing. That way they sue the hospital. There's no cap on pain and suffering there. And they basically said, you didn't look at the data bank and you didn't find out about this, guys, or you didn't check, in fact, that this person never graduated from medical school. And uh, there was this case that we did, Greg, where, in fact, this person probably should not have been uh, credentialed uh, and they didn't do a good enough job to go after the hospital. Well, we got we got one of those coming up here a little later today, Rick. But why don't you right now give me a break and let's hear about this uh, the effect of shared decision making on patients' likelihood of filing a complaint or lawsuit. That is a good article. You know, I've never seen a paper like this. This was in the uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine. You know, they have all of these these papers now that are called e-published ahead of. Uh, Ahead of being put into the paper journal, they published right. them at, in advance. These articles have all been scrutinized and peer-reviewed and all that other stuff. They're just waiting to be slotted into a, an issue. So this was published in the January 2019 issue, but it came out earlier. It points out, and this really annoyed me, that 75% of emergency physicians will be sued at some point in their career. And this is one of the introduction to this uh, study. And I went back. I knew that this was going to be the case. The article that they were referring to was published in the New England Journal in 2011. Everybody refers to that article, Rick. It's the most referred to medical legal uh, article in the country. Yes. Well, I pulled up that article. The data for that uh, assertion was a survey that was done between 1991, which is basically the Stone Age, and 2005. 2005 was the most recent. Wait, 91, you were mid-career, Rick. Move ahead. Now. So the idea of still asserting this as a truth is just ridiculous because we did a paper uh, where they looked at suits in the uh, U.S. Acute Care Solutions Group. Uh, yes. Dominic Bagnoli's group, and uh, they looked at almost 10 million cases that they had, and the and the frequency of lawsuits was one per 100,000 cases, and that turned out to be 98 cases. Of those 98 cases, 19 resulted in the exchange of dollars. Uh, 
So, you know, you know this boogeyman of uh, lawsuits and, you know, uh, we got to be careful and all this other stuff and uh, we got to over-test and over-treat and, and this is just, this will never die despite, <laughs> despite the facts. In any case, what they did in this is they created a scenario where, and they asked people, what if you went into the emergency department with abdominal pain? And you uh, and you were giving given blood tests and you were giving pain medicines and uh, there was a discussion about getting a CT of your abdomen and they they basically looked at three three scenarios one of the in one scenario there was no shared decision making they just said we're not going to do the CT you know and another yeah. one there was you know a moderate amount of shared decision-making. And in the third scenario, there was a pretty comprehensive uh, conversation regarding shared decision-making. This involved uh, a series of 800 and some patients that they got through something called crowdsourcing, whatever that is. That's how right. they got them. Anyway, it turns out in this scenario, this is a, um, that – Two days later, you go back and your pain is worse and a CT is done and it shows a ruptured appendix. The surgeon takes the appendix out. You're in the hospital for four days. You don't return to work for six weeks. The surgeon says to you, being the jerk that they might be, well, had this, <laughs> had this, had this, had you, you know, had this diagnosis been made earlier, you know, your outcome would have probably been better and you would not, and you would have recovered sooner, et cetera. So they asked these 800 some people, one third of them got no, no uh, shared decision making. A, a, a third of them got, you know, light duty and a, and a third got more, uh, more aggressive, a shared decision making conversation. Um, 12% of those getting the brief or the comprehensive shared decision-making conversation, said I would go to a lawyer. And uh, in the group that got no shared decision-making conversations, they just said, we're not, you know, you don't, you don't need a CT, no conversation. 41% of them said that they would go to a lawyer. It was a huge, huge difference. I think that this is, uh, now there's a, I think there's a certain group of people who might say, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that this is a simulation. It was a survey. We don't really know what it, what it really happened. But this is, I think, a really important piece of information regarding shared decision making and its importance in liability. Uh, I think that, and they're not asking you to, you know, read a textbook to the people. The people who got the small amount of shared decision making were just as unlikely to complain about you and, 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 and get a lawyer as the ones who got an extensive amount. So it seems that it's very reasonable to say, Mrs. So-and-so, at this time, for these reasons, I don't think we need to do anything further. Uh, they basically showed that w when those physicians gave them some shared decision-making conversation, they were much more likely to view them as competent and um, they were much more Care, caring. And now they're caring as well as competent, right? Yeah, it, they um, were less likely to fault them for the adverse outcome compared to those who just basically said, "You know, we don't. We're done. Thank you very much." And so, I think that this is 
a really important paper. Yes, you can try to take this paper apart because it's a simulation, etc. How else are you going to do some study like this for crying out loud? Big, I think a big important lesson here, Greg. Yeah, no, I think it's very good. And as you remember, um, Rick, about two years ago, three years ago, we uh, reviewed the work done at the University of Michigan by Rick Boothman. Your neighbor. Where they went in, yeah, remember, they went right into everybody where they thought there was a problem and talked to them. They said, look, we this might have happened. This might have been done. And if you looked at that, the University of Michigan actually shrunk the number of lawsuits uh, by uh, better than 40 percent. And and it, I think really it, I don't care what you talk to them about exactly. I think that you thought enough to talk to them and treat them as people. Um, that's why they feel a little better about it. Because I'm sure the the minimal the minimal group that that told them a little bit, they probably didn't have enough information to make scientific sense out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, when you go to your auto dealership and the guy says, "You know, I want to talk to you about your brake your rotors on your brake on your disc brakes. Here's what it usually is, and you're now down to this." I'm thinking you need a new set of rotors. What do you think about that? You know what? How often are you going to follow his suggestion? These are your brakes. <laughs> this is what your wife and kids drive with. Uh, if he took the time to do that, I think you're going to get the rotors done. I really do. Well, you know, Maybe, I think, y- yeah. yes, we can always kind of taint these or point these conversations in the way we want to point them uh but the effect on the patient was very very positive in terms of how they perceived these doctors they you know it's like mrs so-and-so we we could do a cat scan that's one of the things that's sometimes done in these cases but to be candid i think that based on your blood tests and your exam I don't think that we need to do this at this time. It can be done at a later time if there's any worsening. But, however, there is this ra- issue with radiation, and I'm concerned about that. And that you and you make this thing, and it's like, wow, you know, it was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, it's an interesting paper. What's the take-home here? Guys, talk to the patients at the time of discharge. Patients should be discharged by the doc. The paper can be signed by somebody else, but you tell them what the options are uh, because the options, um, they're pretty reasonable people too. And I'll tell you, going through some medical things right now myself, I want to be able to talk about the options uh, and and what's going to happen well, and what I, we're going to do. I think that's one important. The, I think one of the challenges there is saying these are lay people what the heck do they know about uh you know millie sieverts or anything like that kind of thing right so it's it's not like apples and apples here so i think that's one of the um issues but just the fact that you made the effort you get credit for it yeah all right moving on i think that's true all right next um we actually have an interesting little uh um, side piece here something called cease and desist now, we use a lot of 
cases on this show that come from a friend of ours who puts out uh, medical malpractice uh, investigations, and uh, he does this for free. You know, Rick and I get these uh, all the time, take a look at them, and uh, he'd actually carried on a discussion about a case in which the outcome was positive for the doctor. There was a no there was a no fault outcome for the doctor, but the attorneys from the staffing group sent him a letter saying that he needed to cease and desist discussing cases. Now, wait a minute. This is a filed case. What that means in every state I know of is that it's public record. If I if I was had the cash I could publish a, a deposition in the New York Times. And, uh, well, we'd be sure nobody'd read it then. Or I could publish it in USA Today. And, and uh, I have a right to do that because as soon as you file the case, it is public record. Now, the argument was, well, the doctor and the group, staffing group he was associated with were mentioned. You know, sometimes there are good teaching points that come up in these cases. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not sure how whether whether he was actually ever then sent uh, a notice that they were going to sue him. No, but was, he did get he did get a cease and desist letter on this. Yeah, it was a it was a threat. Uh, you can threaten anybody uh, that you're going to go after them, and just a threat of being going after is uh, shuts you down. This was uh, about, and the fact of the matter is, I don't know that when he was discussing this case in his newsletter, that uh, names were mentioned at all, because there's no, yeah. there's no point in mentioning the names of the staffing group or the doctor or, or those kinds of things in, in getting uh, to the gist of a case what we should try to, what were the issues of the case? How do we avoid, you know, those kind of problems in the future? And we don't have to say it was this group or that group or this doctor or that doctor uh, at all. So, and he, I don't think he did, but it, it was, it was, the group basically was so sensitive to this case that they basically suggested that, well, other people know who you're talking, you're talking about us. And so right. you better back off. I don't think that that, We've never had anything like that happen in the, I don't know, 12 years that we've been doing this. But I don't think we've really mentioned anybody's names of in, when it comes to cases. We've been very it's, careful except yours, about that. You know, yes, yes, even, right. Well, that's my yours, case. Of course. Yeah. yeah, but I'm well known for having committed things. All right. Now, for those of you, and I'm willing to bet half the people who listen to us are involved in some way of setting policy within their state ASEP chapter. You go to the state ASEP chapter, you pay your dues money to the professional society, which is the trade organization. And what you do with that is you get things done at the state legislature and in courts. That's, where, that's what sets the actual practice in your state. And I've got a few I want to review for you, which are just good news. Let's do some good news here now. And again, I, I more carefully than other states follow my own state of Michigan. 
But in the uh, in the case of Perez versus Henry Ford Health System, the Michigan Court of Appeals, and this is docket number three four zero zero eight two. Oh, good. This well, in case anybody wants to look it up, it said this: they're bringing in experts, and we'd complained about this forever. They were bringing in experts who spent more time in a super, super subspecialty than they did their own subspecialty. And finally, the court actually dismissed a case and they said the time a physician spends practicing a subspecialty cannot be combined with time that a physician spends practicing a more general specialty in order that that physician can qualify as an expert in the field. Here's the example. If your OB doc only does OB cancer, that's what he does. And, and that's the way it's now become. Most OB docs who do uh, surgical oncology, they don't deliver babies anymore. They don't do that kind of thing. Well, this was the exact case uh, in which somebody wanted to, now that he's retiring, do some general OB um, uh, activity in court. Uh, and they said, no, you're basically a subspecialist in oncology. If you want to speak to that, fine, but you can't take that time and combine it to consider yourself an expert. For example, if an emergency doc has now changed their practice to where all they did was, was, uh, toxicology, uh, they can be an expert in toxicology. The question is, how much do they time, time do they actually do doing general emergency medicine? I thought this was an interesting uh, decision. And what I'm advising here is in your state, find out what they're doing. Because this is worthwhile for the state organization to work on. You don't want uh, subspecialty people coming in and doing general emergency medicine uh, expert witnessing when they haven't done it for years. And I, I think that this is very useful. Rick, comments? Don't disagree. Uh, I'm kind of surprised that uh, it there must have been some case that they were talking about and specifically that oh, yes. was bugging, yes. bugging them. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, next. This is Harris by next friend of Harris versus Fox. An employer owes no duty to protect the general public from the criminal actions of an employee which occur outside of their employment. This is what happened. Um, and I don't need to mention the hospitals here. But the, uh, a young woman who worked uh, in nursing in an emergency department had actually was actually pilfering small amounts of propofol uh, from the stocks in the emergency department. Now, she took some just as she's leaving the shift uh, out in the car parking lot and driving home, she gets into an accident and uh, off the premise. The people in the car that were hurt by her wanted to come back and sue the hospital 
uh, sue the doctor who was on duty, sue this and this and this, and said, you should have known that your uh, employee was uh, doing criminal activity and they would hurt somebody else. And the court basically says, you know what? There'll be criminals everywhere. It wasn't up to the docs to be monitoring her, the other nurses to be monitoring her, the the employee, the, the hospital itself to be monitoring her. And what it basically said, if you got somebody who's criminal on site, um, you're not responsible for them. You didn't okay it. You didn't suggest it. You didn't give it away. And so it's not a problem. Where we're going to see more of these things, by the way, is in all of these suits. And I think half the states in the United States, you know, are, are bringing actions, not only against drug manufacturer of opioids, but distributors of opioids, including hospitals, uh, emergency departments, things like that. And uh, I, I, what I want to do is I want to keep a distance. If somebody's stealing pills and selling them out on the street, it ain't my problem. And it's not the hospital's problem. I like that. Well, you know, you mentioned opioids, and uh, I've seen now a couple of really thoughtful, well-written essays saying the pendulum has swung too far, uh, particularly with regarding the care of patients who have uh, non-cancer but chronic pain, and that these people are being cut off. They're going through cold turkey. They're because of this opioid-phobia that has been created, which I personally think, honest to goodness, is nuts. Uh, they should have left us alone in the ER. And, and yes, there were some people who might have prescribed a little bit too much, and, but this is way out of hand now. You know, Greg, I also um, just got an email right before we got on the air here uh, from David Essler. Did you uh, see that email? I have not seen it. And okay. David is a longtime listener, good friend. <laughs> and uh, we, D David David keeps us honest. What did he say? Well, you know, this actually, we so we started recording at 11 o'clock my time. And uh, <laughs> this came in at 1049. Talking, ah, uh, talking about sl sliding underneath the wire here. Whoa. <laughs> good job, David. David basically... Uh, David's from Vancouver, foreign country, another country up there. Yeah. And, and he was concerned about, he liked this that conversation we had with Amal Matu and the Kowalski decision and the fact that, you know, uh, we are not our brother's keeper in the state of New York. And, and if you're intoxicated, you can still let those people out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, a decision which I think is absolutely nuts, to tell you the yeah, truth. Yeah, by the way, Kowalski is an aberrancy. Yeah, absolutely. It's just an aberrancy. Well, David yeah. basically says, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate because we basically said it was a wacko decision. I'm going to be yeah. devil's advocate and suggest it is not a sound strategy to just hang on to such patients until they are sober in order to ensure they don't leave and wander into traffic, fall, and hurt themselves. He says, the, the first, the, the department is busy, and uh, we don't have the space for them. And uh, the fact that, you know, 
they're gonna some, they're gonna wander out and get hit by a bus. The likelihood of that is very very small. Ah, uh, yeah, we have those cases, but that's okay. So, um, leaving them in a department can make our lives stressful. Did it? Did it? Did it? Did it? David, David, David. Um, how could you possibly justify sending out a person who has? They're not drunk. They have an organic brain syndrome, acute chemical-induced organic brain syndrome. Um, and to the extent that you let them go when they are uh, bouncing off the walls a little bit, or maybe not a bouncing, just uh, walking, uh, unable to walk a straight line, their speech is slurred and those kinds of things, it's not the same. Once they're in the department, you have incurred responsibility whether you like it or not. It's not like they're in a bar with all the other drunks in the bar, and the guy goes out and, uh, you know, walks home. It's it's a different story. And so how are you going to defend sending that out? And all the nurses are going to say, yeah, he was drunk, uh, kind of thing. And um, so, David, I don't – I I think uh, we need to keep an eye on these people until we have somebody who can take them home, who's going to walk them up the stairs, who's going to take responsibility for their drunk brother – all those kinds of things. Yes, they don't have to have a blood alcohol zero, but they have to be safe to leave. Yeah, I think that, uh, uh, come on, David, you're a Canadian. You're supposed to be nicer and yeah, kinder exactly. and kinder, more gentler than, than Americans. And uh, this, this is tough. I, I think the obvious question to any jury is, to the doctor is, what would you have done with your brother and if you wouldn't let your brother walk out, you're not going to let somebody else's brother walk out. You know, and it's uh, it's it, it's a difficult case. And by the way, in the Kowalski case, two examinations said he was speaking normally. He was rational. He did have uh, normal gait and station. It, it wasn't as if they took a guy who was a slobbering drunk and kicked him out. And it's uh, it's different. But. To me, and we've now seen this around the country, people talking about the Kowalski decision as if it changes anything. I don't think it changes we anything. We shouldn't talk about this anymore. Okay. You know, the last thing he said is, you know, we got resource limitations uh, in the department. We, we, we just can't be, be handling all of this when we got other people got got issues. Well, that's true. That's true. You think the jury is going to be interested in your argument about resource limitations when there is a problem somebody gets hurt it it, it come on you know i agree david it's kind of inconvenient i get degree it's a I agree it's a pain in the butt yeah, but, but would, this is called risk management monthly yeah i i think as i remembered it uh a lot of things in practice were a pain in the butt and uh not having enough beds not being able to move people upstairs So should I take all the old ladies who are there and kick them out because we don't have enough room either? I mean, it's it's one of those things that it never looks good at two o'clock in the afternoon in the courtroom uh, for you to be less than protective of the patient. I, I just think it it doesn't it doesn't go well. I don't know. But, uh, David, keep writing. And uh, we'll keep trashing you. I mean, we love it. (laughs) (laughs) No, we might agree every once in a while. We do. Come on. Um, 
let me give you some uh, cases here to now uh, to 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 warm the cockles of your heart, Rick. Um, Moran versus Advocate Health and Hospitals Corporation. Uh, this is an Indiana court ruling in a breach of contract case. And this is interesting. An anesthesiologist had a contract with this group. Uh, they all, everybody in the group had a contract with the group. Unfortunately, he developed simultaneously Parkinson's disease and multiple myeloma. It became evident to the people at the table, the surgeons, the circulating nurses, that sort of thing, that that his manual dexterity had fallen uh, and his communication skills were worse. He had stuttering speech. He was unable to communicate certain things. So what the uh, team did the, the quality assurance team did was they basically decided he was not competent to return to anesthesiology. Due to his inability to practice, the anesthesiologist did not meet his contractual volume requirements and ceased receiving his quarterly profit sharings. Now, does it matter this is anesthesia and not uh, emergency medicine? Not a bit. The same issues are all here. And if you don't think you don't have somebody in your group uh, whose abilities are maybe going down a little bit, you've been told by the nursing staff, um, you know, old Dr. Henry really doesn't know the names of the medicines anymore, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to do with this? Well, basically... This turned into an ugly bit because he, of course, the anesthesiologist, sues the group, saying, well, you didn't prove this and that and all this sort of thing. The group sues him. They countersue for constructive fraud. What they said is, you knew you had some of these things coming on and didn't come back to tell us. What finally the court said was, wait a minute wait a minute, this guy has to see patients, he has to take some responsibility, and so the surgery center and the group that relieved him of privileges, uh, they won a summary judgment because basically they said this was their job to protect the public first, not his right to profit sharing. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> it's well, like, it's like, well, well, I, well, I think there's t two issues here. One of them is, is he entitled to the money that the group made uh, proportionately to uh, his level of service or, uh, or was the uh, issue really the, uh, them telling him that uh, they're concerned about his uh, skill set and he, then, then that he should have advised them in advance. I think there are two, two, two things here. I don't, and by the way, the group did not try and cheat him out of any money. He got his profit sharing oh, up okay. to the last day he saw patients, but he was not going to continue in profit sharing 
uh, if he wasn't actually, they had a volume kicker that said to be in the profit sharing plan, you have to have done certain things. So I think, uh, I think this question, the question is not just this case, but it's what are we doing now to re-credential, to look and see if people are still capable? Do we actually listen when the nurses bitch? Is it going to be a problem? Is that going to be discoverable that uh, when the chairman of the department is on the stand and they say, doctor, you knew he shouldn't have been seeing patients. You had nurses come to you. You had people who wanted him relieved. Did you have some system to look at, to deal with these questions and to, and to determine competency of the physician? And I think this is going to happen more and more as we get more and more old physicians. Well, I, I think that soon as a nurse comes to the management of a group and says anything about the a physician's behavior that uh, could question their ability to uh, properly evaluate and treat patients, uh, you have an obligation uh, to respond to that. You don't want anybody saying, well, I told them and they never listened to me. Now look what happened. And understand in any uh, legal case, a a malpractice case, they're going to get nurses on the stand. They're going to get other people on the stand. And if they uh, if they aren't in line with you, if you haven't taken these things in seriously, nobody sitting on the jury is interested in in the niceties uh, and not offending an older doctor. They don't care because what they think your job is is taking care of them first. This is like the airline pilots when the when the uh, a um, cabin attendant goes and reports an airline pilot as as being uh, uh, suspicion of using drugs or something, they have a zero zero tolerance policy for that sort of stuff. And I think we ought to, too. And I don't think we do, Rick. I think there are a lot of docs who get away with crap. I think it's very difficult for a group to confront one of their colleagues who may be a senior member of the group, maybe the founder of the group, but um, the nurses basically say something to somebody. Yep. You cannot let it end there. It is really, really, really dangerous because when there's a problem, if there is a problem, uh, they will not be your friends. They will have said, we told them, and they never took any action. I had to, uh, many, many years ago, I had to go to one of the founding members and relieve him of his responsibilities. And he had, you know, fallen asleep while doing a pelvic exam, had had to go out to a car five and six times a shift to uh, snort something up his nose. And it was interesting with one of the um, head nurses said to me, she said, it's interesting that every nurse in the department knew the problem. You guys didn't know the problem because you don't actually work with each other. You work next to each other. And you're not often watching to see what's going on. And I said, well, you know, you could have come to us earlier. 
And she said, yeah, it became such common conversation around the department. Uh, we had to come to you because you didn't figure it out. And and uh, we were going to go to the hospital next. So uh, that's is something to think yeah, about. Yeah, you don't want them to go in the hospital. You want to handle these problems yourself. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but exactly. it's so much, it's so easy to turn your back on these things. You know, I, I was director for 25 years. It's kind of, this is among the hardest things that you have to deal with. But if there's a problem, it's going to not look good at all. And you right. advised that there was, this doctor had some issues and you said, well, you know, he, he only works nights. We're going to give this doctor <laughs> a lot of latitude, a lot of latitude. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he sleeps in a coffin, so it's okay. I mean, we just wheel him out when we need him at, when it's dark out, but it, it it's uh, it's not a good thing. I will present you one um, sort of uh, tag-on case here to this. I believe in in general, the the nursing staff does have a clearer view of a lot of our behaviors that we don't have ourselves. Uh, it is worthwhile if you're the chief of the department. Sometimes I don't think people know why they get paid extra money to be the chief of the department. Well, they, they do the schedule. They do the schedule, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing you do have to do on a regular basis is meet with the with the nursing staff, the head nurse, and say, Tell me what they're saying about my people, because sometimes they won't say it straight to your face, but every one of them, and, and you notice the nurses will roll their eyes or shake their heads when they find that a certain doctor is going to be on that shift. If that's going on, <laughs> you got to know about it, because uh, that's the sort of thing that if there's a lawsuit about any kind of case and the nurses are not in your corner, the last thing you want is them appearing against you. Well, you know, in court. there is this thing called a 360 evaluation. Right. Where uh, if a physician's being evaluated, basically everybody in the department gets, <laughs> gets, their, gets a crack at making uh, uh, some comments regarding this. Yep. I, I'm, I'm sure it's when it's done, it is done in a careful manner, but uh, they want to hear from virtually all of the stakeholders in a department regarding the um, a physician. And, and it's, same, it's the same for when they get evaluated. It's a 360. Everybody gets to, you know, put in their two cents about uh, that person's behavior. Um, yes, I think you, I, I'm not exactly quite sure how it's really done when it when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, but it does make a lot of sense. If you really want to find out the answer, you just gotta you just can't ask the people that uh, that that are likely to give you the answer you want to hear um, at all. And so th if I think it sounds like it's a very legitimate thing to do. Rick, are uh, we have time for one more problem? Absolutely, we have okay. um, we have fifteen minutes, Doctor. Well, I've got to do one in the month. All right, I'm going to give you a current problem which we're dealing with, 
and it's not pleasant. It has to do with a doctor who's decided he is emotionally a little upset. Now, he didn't just keep this buried. He went to the chief of the department and said, you know, I think I'm depressed. I think I'm this. So he goes to the chief of staff and says, so-and-so has come to me with his medical problem. Just like if he'd come to him with alcoholism or drug abuse or violent behavior or something like that. So now that we have a committee in the hospital that's going to follow him. But now a member of that committee has been talking. Maybe it's, I think it's his spouse who actually talked about this. So now it's common knowledge in the department. And there are people who have raised the question, should he be seeing patients in the emergency department until he is pronounced cured? Because the last time I checked, Depressives are never cured. They're controlled and managed. And now someone from the administration has come down to the, uh, to the uh, group and basically said, you know, if something goes wrong and this guy's a depressive. Uh, maybe, maybe he should be off for the next six months till he's treated. What would you do about that, Rick? Because now we have the rights of the doctor who has been forthcoming and said, yeah, I've got a depressive problem. I don't know what he said about it. I wasn't privy to that ask whether he thought about suicide, that sort of thing. But now it's become common knowledge and administration wants to know Are you going to take that guy off until he's treated? You see, he's not, he's got a contract with the group. The group has a contract with the hospital. This isn't like a private practice surgeon or orthopod on the staff. And the hospital has a contract. What do you think about this one, Rick? Well, you know, this is really uh, a sad state of affairs because, uh, there is this issue of burnout. I can't tell you how many people uh, papers I see on burnout. Wellness, right. And, yeah. um, and the idea that part of burnout is basically, uh, I think, in many cases at least, uh, depression. And the idea that you cannot discuss mental health issues because of the uh, stigma associated with them still in 2019 uh, is really, really sad. We had at our hospital uh, some issues like that. And I think that that doesn't mean that these people are incompetent to practice medicine. It doesn't mean that their judgment is impaired. It doesn't mean that their ability to suture and intubate is impaired. It basically means that they are you know, uh, their mental state is not good with regards to this idea of being depressed. However, it doesn't mean they can't work. And the fact of the matter is, is that I think the supportive group will say, we're behind you. We understand that this is a really tough job. There's, uh, you may, you know, there may be issues at home. There may be issues at work. There may be, uh, you know, it may just be 
exogenous or endogenous. This comes out of the blue. But the fact of the matter is, is that the group needs to stand behind them, say, listen, we want you to get treatment. We, we want to know that you're continuing to get treatment. Uh, uh, you, as far as we're concerned, we'll keep you on as, uh, as, uh, to the extent that you want to be kept on. We don't think there's an issue with regard to your medical skills, but um, we want you to get treatment. And frankly, um, the director might say, listen, I want, to, I want you to uh, report back that you are getting treatment. And in, in, in one case that we had at the hospital, the hospital mandated that the, that the psychi- uh, psychiatrist report not the issues that the person was depressed about, that, but this that he was going to the psychiatric uh, sessions that he what what kind of progress he was making those kinds of things were reported back to you know just one or two key people it wasn't spread out over the entire medical staff kind of thing the issue was that the doctor is going for care the psychiatrist is is reporting back there is some progress being made He's on medication, is feeling better, those kinds of things. This is what the group's got to do um, to, to help this doctor. And I think you well, need to, here's, I think here's you need to separate I think you need to separate their clinical ability to see patients with this mental health issue. We you know, we know of doctors who have committed suicide. There's this slope which is kind of like you gotta intervene. And if you know of a colleague who is down, you've basically got to you've got to step forward and say, you know, Frank, um, the nurses are saying that you've been kind of moody lately, and you're showing up for work late, and all of these markers of depression uh, right. and burnout, they need to be recognized and and addressed. Yeah. Well, and of course, the big problem with the hospital committee is that it's much better. Much easier for them to look at somebody who's got repeat blood tests for the use of drugs, that sort of thing. That's open. They've got a number. They've got something they can look at. Uh, getting what you want from the other, uh, from a, a disease like depression is very difficult. And the hospital, of course, feels with the contracted services, anesthesia, radiology, pathology, and emergency medicine, they've got a bigger stick to wield. Oh, yeah. Which, which is, we're getting you off this till we have this guy um, in such and such a position. And, you know, when you say to them, you know, there's a Americans with Disabilities Act, there's all kinds of things. we got to be a little careful how we handle this. Hospital's not terribly interested in that. Because, as they say, we can bid out the contract. You know, I, I was talking uh, with words. I was yeah. talking with a physician recently, and uh, there were some issues going on that p- potentially threatened his job uh, for a variety of reasons. And I asked him, "Well, are you a employee or are you an independent contractor?" And he said, "I'm an employee." And I said, "Oh, that's great because you have." Uh, the ability to uh, 
you need to be counseled. They, you know, they need to go through this whole process if they want to fire you. But if you're right. an independent contractor, you're out of here kind of thing. So right. I, was, I was relieved that this person was an employee because he has rights as an employee. You have no rights as a contractor. Uh, but, the, but interestingly enough, he said, my contract comes up in six months. I said, contract? I thought you said you were an employee. He said, I am, but I have an employee contract, and it goes for you know three years or something like that. And I never realized that this person has the benefits of being an employee for a finite amount of time. The nurses, when they're hired, they don't have a contract. They're hired for eternity kind of thing. That's right. That's so right. they're, this they're is, covered by the master employment agreement. This That's is so it. so different. So the idea here is if you're an employee, yeah, you have rights for about <laughs> for the term of your employ, employment contract. Right, right, exactly. All right. Well, difficult problems and as wellness uh, becomes more and more of an issue and burnout becomes more and more of an issue – uh, I don't think these are going to go away, and we're going to have to know the best ways to pr- to protect the docs and the patients. I mean, clearly, if you got somebody who's crying in the back room uh, and thinking he's going <laughs> to yeah. kill himself, you gotta you gotta act on that. Well, I don't even think that there's the the you gotta you know think say they're going to just the fact that they're crying, you know, yeah. uh, and you know that has happened. Uh, I think we've all seen people who are really basically on the edge and you ha- you have an obligation to intervene. I mean, if you're the director of the group, absolutely, you you have an obligation. It's not easy. It's not, it, you'd rather kind of hope it just went away, but there are medical legal consequences to this um, response that you make. Absolutely. Well, Rick, I'm going to do wine of the month. Is that all right with you? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Is it anything under ten dollars is fine? <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. It, well, I got some close. You know, we started last month with two of the newer ones, which have gotten into Costco, and I'm going to give you two more at Costco. You can you. We know you take a weekly trip through Costco. I hate to just admit, to replace but I do. socks and underwear. So here we go. Um. Uh, whether most people don't know that two or three years ago, Costco came out and said, we are going to be the world, the largest wine distributor in America. And they, they went and made all these contracts with actually very big name people uh, to get it under another name, but they've got two that should be considered seriously. One of them's uh, Tabali Reserva Especial Sauvignon Blanc this is from Chile, and Chile makes some great wines. They've got nice temperatures on those hillsides. Um, this one is is item number 1110345. You can ask for it by number, and the people at uh, Costco should run in the back and get it. Um, it is the lightest, fruitiest um, Sauvignon Blanc you ever want to taste, and again, Rick, it's in your price range. And the last one is they've got a deal with the French. Uh, they've got Chateau de Thurvonay Sancere. And uh, that number is 547331. 
Um, again, this is a little heavier uh, white than than uh, the last one we mentioned, but very good stuff. And you you don't have to spend huge amounts of money per bottle to get some very tasty stuff. So Costco, you've done it again. Okay, Rick, that's Risk Management Monthly for April. You know, I wanted to mention before we signed off that because this is the April issue, and I think that actually it'll be going out uh, fairly early in the month, that there is still opportunity to go to the uh, what we used to call the uh, emergency medical abstract courses. Technically, it's called uh, acute, uh, emergency medicine acute care, a, a, a critical appraisal. We have about five of these uh, left by the time you get this. And we're gonna, one of them is going to be actually in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, which in June is absolutely a gorgeous time to be there. Uh, we've got some uh, some San Francisco. We've got some Hilton Head. We've got a bunch of stuff New, that I – New York. New yeah, York, well, New York City, up. which is uh, – we do New York in the heart of Times Square, the uh, Marriott Marquis, which is uh, the uh, – most profitable, I think, of the Marriotts that they have. <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> because, it's, you know, what do you want for $600 a night for a room kind of thing? But we, yeah. get a, we get a better price than that. But anyway, take a look at our website, ccme.org. Appreciate it if, if you did. I think that you'll really enjoy these courses. We have, uh, 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 well, I just don't, don't want to say anything more about it. But just just, just take a look. Thanks so much, uh, Greg, for uh, bringing together this uh, this uh, issue. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. Bye.